0: Welcome to the Music Gets Me High podcast, and I'm Ritnika Nain. In today's podcast, we're going to have a chat with Jahan Johar. Hey, Jahan, welcome and thank you for tuning in all the way from lovely Goa. (laughs) Jahan has been in the business for a very long time. He started off in New York. Uh, He went there to study, started DJing. Uh, And he's been actually, you know, playing music and touring as a as a DJ all over the world. So we're going to talk about that. He was also head of artists at Blue Frog Mumbai, which was one of the best venues (laughs) that we've had so far. And currently under his company, Raw Music, he is he runs a studio in Goa, but also is the main curator for Sula Fest. Uh, which is where Jahan and I get to work together. So it's a lot of fun. It's the best festival in India. <laughs> so yeah, welcome Jahan.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this discussion.
0: Yes. So let's start off with something very simple. How did you get started in mm-hmm. music?
1: Okay. So there's there's two parts to that of how I got into music. The first part was basically to do with my childhood Mm -hmm. because I had, uh, exposure to actually electronic dance music really early on in, in the, like in the Mm -hmm. eighties, because I I was in Goa as a child and my parents who had traveled and lived all over the world, they were quite cool, quite open-minded and there were lots of the the scene in goa was growing at that time so there was experimental electronic music parties of course i was really young five six seven years old so it's not like i was at parties at that age but i was in that community as a child and as i grew up i was actually exposed to some of the first electronic music parties that happened
0: mm-hmm.
1: ever, ever you know, yeah. so that that was like a seed in my head but then Um, Then I went to high school and then I went to college. In college, I I studied film and video production and literature. So I didn't actually plan on getting into music. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people who get into music, they don't really plan on it. It kind of unfolds. (laughs) Yeah. You don't really need to study music to get into it. Of course, you need to study if you want to play an instrument. Sure, for sure. Uh, And I did. I, I played the saxophone for six years in high school. Um, when I was in college in New York studying film, I was also in a jazz percussion ensemble. Oh, So, yeah.
0: I did not so know that. So I kept, the,
1: <laughs> yeah, you did not know that. So even though I was doing other things and traveling and studying, I still always had a bit of music going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, then after college, when I moved to, to New York City, I was working in a, in a satellite TV station. But by night, that was my day job. My, my night job was that me and these two Japanese guys, we started an event org. Or, and we used to fly in DJs from different parts of the States and also from Europe and do events and clubs mm-hmm. in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Yeah. And that was my f- first official, like, you know, investing money into music and trying to make things happen. Of course, we were not making money. Yeah. <laughs> we were either losing money or just about breaking even. <laughs> and uh, That's also where I started DJing because like I, the, the funny story, my first gig, I got before I knew how to DJ. Oh wow! I, yeah, because there were there were Goa trance parties going on in New York, and I'm from that scene. So I just convinced the promoter that look, you gotta let me play, and he said okay. We, and I didn't tell him that I don't really know the technical side of DJing yet, mm-hmm. even though I know I know the music really well. So he um, said okay, you can you can play in two weeks, and I quickly went and bought secondhand equipment and locked myself in a room and taught myself how to play, <laughs> and then that was. That was it beginning of that yeah. <laughs> but then more seriously like the whole blue frog thing that you were talking about then because when i moved back to india i was still working in film yeah and I, of course i was djing that was like my hobby that i would make money from it but actually it was a hobby
0: yeah
1: but then i got a bit disillusioned with the film because i was i studied alternative filmmaking
0: yeah
1: and i wasn't really into the whole bollywood thing exactly and uh, the problem i was,
0: had when i got into yeah. bollywood
1: <laughs> yeah i was like you know so the company I was working for was doing alternative films, but then they started steering into the Bollywood direction. And then I made a decision that, okay, enough. And I'm going to go full, full on into music, but I still didn't know exactly where to find good, a good platform. Yeah, And a few, you know, interesting uh, meetings and luck also led me to find uh, this blue frog, which was still, in construction stages
0: so tell us about how the blue frog thing happened i mean i know you've had some experience with music abroad and you were djing and things like that but like you've been you know involved from the start so like how did that happen and what made it so different you know from other venues
1: yeah so being involved from the start was really important you know for me and my growth because when you join a company or a club that's already running, you just have to fit in mm-hmm. to their system and upgrade it or whatever. but when you when you join from the formative, like I had to figure out everything. I had to s- structure the way the programming team was going to work and even meet with lawyers and find loopholes of paying international artists without paying tax. you know it was like a it was a creative job, but it was also very logistical and technical, but it was great to be part of the, the core team. Yeah. You know? um, what made Blue Frog different from the, the venues at that time in India was that we were the first, or yeah, we were the first venue to actually have our own in-house programming team, okay, and a marketing team, and a digital, you know, and an accounts department, and we had because previous to Blue Frog, what what clubs were doing was they'd have an F&B manager, and a or a manager who basically didn't really know much about music and events but it by default would fall into his or her lap to reach out to musicians or to do deals with you know upcoming promoters
0: yeah
1: and it was a very ad hoc random you know there was no structure there was no pre-planning so blue frog kind of we turned that around we said let's have a programming model let's book all our artists two to three months in advance let's keep certain themes on certain days let's make guidelines that we will not cross in over into this genre for example we said no bollywood
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: you know because i mean not that we have something against it it's just that that's that is
0: already done. that was
1: well represented yeah. all over the country you know and we were more of an alternative venue mm-hmm. and then you know our, our own marketing team so like as me and my programming team and the marketing team literally sat across from one another mm-hmm. so we could come up with innovative ways of marketing we could come up with you know ways of making loyalty programs for you know people who come you know so it was a a very creative environment and organized yeah and um, yeah that was the main difference
0: so how did you get the job i mean like how did that even happen because a lot of people are trying to get into the field you know and they don't know how to kind of get in
1: (laughs) yeah so the the way i got the job was very interesting because it wasn't like what i told you about my stuff in new york when i was organizing events and djing I had, it was a company called sound species and it was, you know, just an org and I had a website and I was looking for in the back of my head. I knew I wanted to work in music, but I'd left Bollywood, but I still needed to earn an income. So I was actually looking for jobs as a first AD for ad film production. Right? So I, I had a few interviews lined up and, um, one of them was with a company called Highlight Films. Mm-hmm. And one of their directors is also a partner in the upcoming Blue Frog, which I didn't know about. Ah. And lit- literally like two weeks before the meeting, I went to uh, a com- the company who had designed my website in New York. Mm-hmm. They were a Bombay-based company called Grandmother of okay. Oh! So I literally went to hang out with them and, t- and they were asking like, oh, what are you doing right now? You've left your old job. And I told them about this. Upcoming interview I had for a film job and they were like, do you know about the side project that the same company is doing and they And because they were building the website for blue frog, Ah. so basically the people who built my sound species website for New York were the ones who were doing this so They told me about the side project that blue Frog, that highlight films was doing so when I went to highlight films I was hoping that they would reject me because I can't go to a film company and say, I want to work for your music project because the light, you know, yeah. so I went for this film job and I didn't act very impressive. And they were like, we'll call you back. And then I was like, yes. <laughs> so then I was like, what about, what about Blue Frog? I heard about you. And they were like, how, how do you even know about it? So then I told them the whole backstory, my New York thing, my website, the DJing. And then they kind of looked at each other and called me for a second interview. And it, then it really worked out. So the, the point is it's, it was relationships
0: yeah. and all connections. All- it's all about who you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like sometimes things, I wouldn't call it luck. It was things just all were moving in that direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I also believe that, you know, once you, once you know, in the back of your mind, like that is what you want and like, you know, music was always a part of your thing. So it kind of, you know, you always keep your eyes open, even if it comes up randomly, you, know, like you never know exactly. how you get opportunities yeah. come up that way.
1: Yeah. yeah. You just have to keep your radar open and, and. Have that hunger for finding things that are related to music and it'll happen, you know. Yeah. Of course you have to the opportunities come that you have to convert it into a reality.
0: Exactly. So I mean nowadays the whole concept of venues is very different. You know, like it's harder for venues. Okay, I'm talking about pre-COVID. I don't know what's gonna happen post-COVID. Yeah. But pre-COVID, yeah. you know, it wasn't how it used to be. I mean, when I was managing bands and touring, I mean, we got paid. I was just telling everybody that we were getting paid like 50, 60, 70,000 rupees plus, tr- plus ho- flights, plus hotels, plus food, like, and this is for a normal indie band, you know? But things are not the same anymore. Like now you're lucky if you get like a 20, 30,000 landed fee, you know? Like, how has it become so difficult now? Like, why has that happened? Do you have any, is that something you saw during Blue Frog as well, the shift? Or was that something later on?
1: Well, um, Blue Frog was part of the reason why there was actually an increase in bookings and fees Mm -hmm. because we were a larger club and we really respected live music and we wanted to support it. Mm. So we actually internally made a decision because we knew already fees were not that healthy for live. So we made a decision like, look, we will not like, of course we have to make money and and negotiate with artists, but we said there's a certain level we will just not go below and we'll make sure that artists fees are at a certain level. So then once artists start earning a certain fee at a certain venue, then it increases their confidence and it increases their market value. And then they start asking it from other places and then other venues have to also, you know, follow suit. Yeah. But, and, and also, you know, like because of this, Blue Frog became like a, the anchor gig in a lot of tours, even for international artists or domestic artists. So once they left their city, like a, a band leaving Delhi will come to Bombay, play, then maybe a Bangalore venue will book them. But that, the fact that they were getting one solidly paid gig in Blue Frog could then enable them to play for slightly less but a still a respectable fee in other venues and flight shares. Yeah. So this created a conducive environment for gigs and touring. Yeah. Now what I see is that there's not enough live music venues actually Yeah. in this in the country, you know, and the ones that are there are, are quite small. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like they can't even afford to pay anything a, a proper fee because, you know, and then let alone flights and hotels you know blue frog luckily had a big capacity yeah you know and we had sponsorship we had you know investors it was a, because we knew it was a very expensive operation so just relying on ticket sales and bar sales was not enough
0: yeah yeah i think that's what set you guys apart because you had the sponsors and the investors because right now most venues that are created they are restaurants first and then they yeah. add the live music element and they don't want to spend yeah. too much money and they want to they want to see their return of that investment, but they're not going to see it from the gig per se. You yeah,
1: know? yeah, and, I think- and it's not done from a, a like you're saying, they're, they're, most places that are F&B or restaurants who then start doing gigs, the reason they start is because they start noticing a drop in their yeah. F&B business. And they like try to think of ways of increasing, you know, and then they put a stage in a corner, and it's just not thought out.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly so i mean you guys booked a lot of international bands at blue frog you know and i think a lot of a lot of us want to understand like how to book international bands like how did that process go about how you know how did the whole booking thing happen what what was the process basically
1: well in the beginning we were a new venue and people didn't know us uh, and we didn't have as many partnerships as we needed Uh, we knew it would unfold over time but in the beginning we were more on our own Mm -hmm. so we literally and also the way you open is important. The kinds of artists you start with are important. So we, in the beginning, we were literally contacting artists in Europe and America, booking them and bringing them to India, uh, giving them two or three gigs in a row, like three nights. Yeah. You know, uh, Because we didn't have a touring network in place. We didn't have relationships with other venues yet. So we were doing that, but that was not profitable. Yeah. It was too expensive, but it was like a financial investment, so to speak. Like, let's start with really good bands and get the reputation going mm-hmm. and later develop partnerships and stuff. Yeah. So, which we had to do very quick because uh, I don't know if you, know, if you, um, probably most of your students don't know this, but in the beginning, Blue Frog was only supposed to be a live music venue. Yeah. There was not supposed to be DJs and stuff, okay. but you know it, that was really expensive booking bands every day of the week, yeah. and also the ethos on weekends in Bombay. You know, people want to come out and also party a bit, not yeah. always listen to a band. You know, I think
0: that's every so, in India; they just want to get drunk, yeah. And
1: party. Yeah. So sometimes on weekends we'd have these great international bands, but the cro- the vibe of the crowd was loud and talkative and noisy, and the band was getting upset, and we were losing money. So I, I was because I was a DJ, I suggested to the owners like, look, firstly, it's not working on a it's not matching on a sort of vibe level. And secondly, we're losing quite a bit of money on the weekends. So let's try DJs on the weekends and keep the live for the weekdays. And we switched to that and that really worked. But anyway, going back to your international band question. Yeah. So in the beginning, we were booking bands, having great nights, but losing money
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and then we slowly shifted into a model where we would um, have to, uh, you know, like, book bands from promoters who were bringing them into the country because they would sort out other gigs in other countries yeah we did partnerships with like not consulates but the cultural wings of consulates like alliance francais or like you know like the dutch i mean the not the dutch the germans
0: things like that
1: british council yeah the germans the english and the french they have a pretty good cultural
0: even the swiss (laughs) Times.
1: yeah true even the swiss yeah in in india at least yeah. so we we did that kind of you know those kind of relationships mm-hmm. uh, also a lot of bands are traveling through india anyway mm-hmm. you know on their own cost yeah but still once in a while we would still you know like have a few gigs that were bands that we'd bring in ourselves you know yeah because so it was a mix, it was you know, mix. and we, yeah, and we wouldn't try and make profits on every gig. We would, we would know from before that okay, this is a gig we will not make money, but we really want this artist and it'll, it'll be good for the mm-hmm. scene, and then we'd have the gigs where we'd make the money, and that's where the electronic gigs came in because <laughs> they made, they yeah. made the money.
0: I mean, that's what that's one of the things. I'm like, people want to buy. You have to sell booze, you know. You have to sell. That's yeah. the only way to make money, and then DJs do make you dance and you need boost to dance most of the time you know yeah so so that so one one question a lot of people tend to ask is i know when we are booking big artists for like international festivals we often make an offer you know you tell them this is what i want to pay for you and the band doesn't tell you hey i'm such a big band i want this much money they you have to make an offer and if they accept it you kind of have to lock the deal how does it work for the artists you were getting for blue frog were you making these offers or and, or was it like they would tell you the fee, and if you were making offers, how do you know how much to offer <laughs> do you know
1: yeah, it's a bit of a juggling act because like with with the really bigger artists like you were talking about, especially for festival gigs, mm-hmm. they will not not quote you'll have to offer yeah. but with with medium scale artists or smaller artists, um, often they just tell you what they expect mm-hmm. you know or you have to You know if they say make an offer and i mean then you have to know the market. you have to know other agents you know research the band literally look at their social media but not look at it just as numbers Mm -hmm. you have to see activity where are they playing look at venues that they've played maybe you know what kind of budgets those venues have so you do have to do a bit of Mm -hmm research you know yeah and we'd always try and get into a conversation that to, to make the band quote
0: yeah naturally, you know?
1: <laughs> but sometimes they wouldn't but you know like it's it's just about how you communicate and you know getting a few hints uh <laughs> you know like sometimes we would make an offer but there would be a a clause in that offer that would offset you know it was like it's a bit of yeah
0: Makes sense, but Indian artists don't work that way. Even if they're big artists, they usually give you a fee. Or they have their fee. yeah. So Indians are- yeah.
1: I've never I've never seen an Indian artist ask for an offer actually. <laughs> yeah. Even the biggest ones, like even like even in the more commercial Bollywood yeah. space, like at Sula Fest, we always do one yeah. Bollywood artist. Yeah. Yeah. Even they they make an they quote a fee and then we negotiate yeah. them down.
0: Yeah.
1: And then yeah. you know.
0: they will be like five rupees <laughs> like, that's how much I'll give you <laughs> all right so yeah. somebody had a question already we have Raga who's asking how did the name Blue Frog come about what was the inspiration behind that name
1: <laughs> well I wasn't involved in in uh, naming the club okay. uh, the yeah when I joined okay. it that was already the name but I know the story All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah it might not be as glamorous as, as you want <laughs> it to be but basically apparently the first um Name that they had in mind, which was not a good name because there's already a band with that name, was Sound Garden. Oh, that was that was their working title. But then they realized it's a big like no, yeah, that's a big band and we can't do that. Then the the next working title was actually a great title, but they knew they'd get in trouble, which was BMC. Because BMC, there was it was going to be Bombay Music Company, yeah, which is a cool name. But the BMC is like the BMC in Bombay, and the, all the gov, like all your licenses Bombay and Bombay Municipal and
0: Corporation or whatever. Corporation, uh-huh. yeah,
1: or council or something. Yeah, it's like trying to open a club in New York and calling it NYPD. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> So that they couldn't do, and they were literally running out of time. They had to give in some legal papers, and they had to come up with a name. Yeah, and one of the owners has a. Collection of frog statues in his house, and they just <laughs> I think
0: and blue know like, which owner this is <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ashu, Ashu.
0: All right, frogs, huh?
1: And blue and blue is a name used a lot in in music. Yeah, like the blue the Blue Note in New York is a famous yeah. club and. Yeah. The blues, so it just so blue, frog, blue frog.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I like, like <laughs> a blue hair, man. I'm all about the blue. So, <laughs> cool, cool. So, um, so one of the other things I wanted to ask was I mean, you know, back then you experiment, blue frog was known for experimenting with different genres. You know, even when you added yeah. DJs and stuff, I mean, you had yeah. boxing, you had jazz, you had funk. I mean, this is very yeah. similar to the Sula Fest vibe as well. Uh, but yeah. do you think today's audience as it stands now? people are still open for venues. I'm not talking about festival, but like clubs to experiment a lot. Or do you think that's gone down and people are a bit more rigid about what they want to consume?
1: No, I, I think if you, it's, it's a lot to do with the space that you present the music in. Mm-hmm. So if you have, like, if you build a club that is conducive mm-hmm. to that, then you will attract the people who are open to it and then the music will work for them. Yeah. You know, but like today, for example, like the clubs that, that are in Bombay right now, they're mostly just like DJ booth and dance floor. Yeah. So the people, like, even if you try and do something alternative there, the people who will come there will not be into that. And the people who are into alternative music will not feel comfortable in that venue. Yeah. So it's like many components have to. So I think the, the, the curiosity and the interest is there. It's just how you, but present it has, it yeah, it's how you present it. It has to be packaged well. And, you know,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah makes sense. So let's talk about raw music all right so tell yeah. us what raw music does when did it start uh, and kind of how did you get involved with sula
1: okay so while i was still with blue frog i actually opened a, a music recording and production studio in goa mm-hmm. and i called that studio 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 ra the sun god so that was <laughs> the sun god and god of creativity yeah also Uh, So that was, I was doing that as a side business. Like I had an engineer in Goa and I was, bands were booking the studio to record. Yeah. Then when I left Blue Frog, I wanted to then do music consultancy and programming basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then the logical progression was to, instead of making a second name and all, I just called it, you know, raw music. Yeah. Um, Regarding how I got into Sula Fest, it's a very good question because it again shows you the power of relationships
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah because i was actually like sulafest was programmed by blue frog and i was the head of programming for blue frog so i was programming sulafest for blue, blue frog. frog yeah yes so and, and it went well, like when I started Sula Fest, my budget was, I can't give numbers, but my budget was, let's say one. Mm. And within two years, it was four. And then within, you know, it was because things were going well. Yeah. But the thing is, whenever there was a Sula Fest meeting, whenever there was anything to be done, it was always me going to the SulaFest office yeah. and handling everything myself, even though I was Blue Frog. Yeah. So this relationship grew. And then when I left Blue Frog, because I, you know, I wanted to leave, mm. Sulafest the owner of Sulafest told me like look we want to stay with you because we know you, you know and we know you you're the one who's been doing everything for us yes you were working for blue frog but every time we met anyone any, any issue happened any meeting yeah all the pre planning everything was just was me and okay i had a bit of support from 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 the rest of my team in blue frog but not much yeah. to be honest
0: yeah
1: you know so so it wasn't like And it was a tricky situation for me because when I left Blue Frog, I didn't leave a clean cut. I left, uh, I became a consultant to to Blue Frog also. So suddenly I was a consultant to Blue Frog and I was programming Sula Fest, which used to be run by Blue Frog. But I explained to them and he, you know, like, it's not like I went to Sula Fest and made this offer.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I didn't, you know, because, and I went to Blue Frog and I said, look, this is the situation and, you know, I'm going, and they also understood. And at the end, it was all fine. I did both. Yeah and then when I even stopped my consultancy with Blue Frog I just continued with, Sula. With Sula.
0: yeah so this is something i, I was t- telling my students that you know this is how a lot of artists when they leave big artist management companies then they kind of go with the manager like how divine went with chaitanya and how nuclear went with tej because that relationship yeah. becomes so solid yeah. that it be, you know which is why if you're becoming if you're working in a big company make sure your relationship with your artists are great
1: yeah <laughs> you keep all your contacts and yeah at the end it's all about people
0: yeah know? and i mean it's that's how I got involved with Sula as well. I just knew you from Blue Frog and we just started oh. talking. And then one day I was like, hey, so how does one work at Sula? Would you like me to be involved? Let's do something. You know, and, and it's, yeah. And then I went from handling just day stuff to, you know, working closely with you with all the, for handling the entire art yeah. relations. So yeah. it's just about building your way up as well and maintaining that relationship and, you know, and that trust, you know, when you, when someone sees you that you're, you you can do what you want them to do, that trust kind of gets.
1: Yeah, fully. Thanks. And you never know when, when a certain, uh, contact or relationship can, you know, like years later, who knows what someone is going exactly. to be doing and where, you know,
0: yeah. I mean, I, is it's not like you and I were hanging out as friends or anything before. I just knew you yeah, we, that, but, we
1: lived in two different cities. Yeah. And
0: I just knew you yeah. as somebody who I would call for booking my artists at Blue Frog yeah. and then yeah. there was no conversation. And then suddenly there was conversation and Hey, look at us now. I chill in your house now. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so let's talk about curation. <laughs> A lot of people, you know, want to understand what does it take to curate a festival that sees what 15,000 people on a regular basis you know how do you decide which artists to choose you know how do artists to can artists approach you is it something that you know you don't take submissions but you decide like how do you go about the whole thing
1: yeah it's quite a <laughs> juggernaut <laughs> but uh there's many ways to approach this answer. So I'm just thinking for a second, <laughs> because it's a mix between um, your, per- not personal taste, but you have to have confidence in what you like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, but you also have to test it out and see that it's working. You know, you can't just be blind and be like, oh, because I like this, it's going to work. Yeah, But you know, like you have to first view a, a festival or a, an evening as like a, a flow and what would you like to happen in that flow. Mm-hmm. And then you try it out. Like, so Sula Fest developed over the years. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, I saw the genres that worked better there. Some was a no brainer. Like, I know in that setting, in that vibe, in that location, with those kind of people, reggae will always work. Yeah. Right? So you try reggae and it works, and then you know, okay, this works. And then you start expanding upon that every year. Like, every year in Sula Fest, we have a reggae band. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the only genres that actually yes, repeats, repeats itself every year. Yeah. yeah. So that's one approach but then there's the other approach which has got to do with uh ticket sales making money so you have to get a few big acts yeah like and like funnily enough i was talking about like my own taste and preferences but if i look back at all the sula fests this year i mean in the last years. eight years the the headlining act that sells the most tickets and has the biggest name is not actually the music that i personally like yeah so you have to also let go of your own ego as well. You know, you have to know what you like, but you also have to know when to let go. Yeah, because it's a business, you know, like,
0: it's a business at the end yeah. of the
1: day. Yeah, it's a business plus, even if it wasn't a business, and let's say it was just a creative project, a free concert
0: yeah.
1: funded by someone super wealthy, you still want the people in the audience to have a good time. Yeah. And there might be something that you know works for them, but even though you might not like it, you have to let go of that yeah. dislike and, and you know present it to them. Yeah. The third factor is, and this is um, kind of unique—not unique to Sula Fest, but quite a strong point for Sula Fest—is to expose audience to new artists, international artists. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of festivals, what they do is the international acts will be the big names, uh, and you don't want to spend money bringing some unknown band from halfway around the world. Sure. But uh, with Sula, I slowly over the years kind of drilled it into their head that that's. Uh, an area we can really develop
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, of you know having a few big international names but also bringing some bands who are just really good mm-hmm. and totally unknown yeah but you know yeah and the 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 thing good thing with Sulafest is that it's even Sulafest is their primary objective as a festival is not actually profits yeah
0: because they're
1: a wine company. they don't want to <laughs> they're a wine company and like this is another thing like Alcohol companies can't advertise in India, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of them, like Absolute, will sponsor Sunburn Festival. They'll throw four crores at Sunburn yeah. and they'll get all this exposure. And But they don't make money back, right? Sure. This this spending, it's marketing money. So Sula was really smart. Instead of saying, we'll sponsor someone else's festival, yeah. they said, we'll we'll make our own festival, get advertising and, and then make vineyard. money back.
0: And in our in their own vineyard. vineyard.
1: Yeah. yeah, in their own vineyard. And then sell tickets. and make, So it's like, someone spends, you know, four crores on advertising and makes money on that investment, yeah. so it's like, you know. Yeah. So because they, are no, not, because they are not so profit hungry, they allow the creative space to flourish a little more and allow me to, you know. Play around. Uh, book, play around with, with the lineup. And yeah. So how does one really-
0: approach Sula Fest if they want to be booked. This is something I get a lot and I just tell them, call Jahan, but how
1: That's do, how you, that's
0: <laughs> But
1: <laughs> do you actually me, yo.
0: consider artists, I mean, because I know Sula Fest, I know we do have some smaller acts, but usually the acts of Sula Fest are a bit more established. You know, they're not the, the upcoming. So what are some of the criteria you look for when it comes to booking an artist?
1: well i mean a lot of the artists i book are the ones i approach but that doesn't mean that if an artist does like there are book times where i get approached by artists like over the the course of the few months like i get approached by lots of artists and i don't make decisions but i keep them on file yeah and then once i start programming the stuff that i've already planned and then i start seeing uh, spaces where i need you know then i go into that pool of artists that i've approached yeah um but I mean there's no formula but
0: does it matter if they have a fan following in Bombay Pune, because Sula is in Nasik and the crowd is from there or does it not matter
1: it it does matter it helps but Sula has also been making a concerted effort to try and get people to come from Delhi and from Bangalore for example now it's much harder to convert you know like if you put a Bombay band, they might draw 200 people. But if you put a Bangalore band, even though they might be three times bigger than the Bombay band, it's hard to convert that travel. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, but that's okay. So we, we make it a point to try and book bands from you know across the country as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the most important part about a band's pitch mm-hmm. for a live music festival is actually their live performance video. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep.
1: That's like, you know, like if someone sends me their SoundCloud links or studio productions and they don't send me a video, mm-hmm. because sometimes you have bands that sound great in a studio, but
0: they don't sound good. On
1: not the live, yeah. you know, yeah. or sometimes they, they're good live, but they're just standing there and performing and there's no like yeah. performance and energy. And, yeah. you know, that's really important because it's a show. Yeah, and it's so not that's
0: a very high, fun, energy, you know, festival. It's, you know, it's not like yeah. a sit down, somber no. festival at all.
1: Yeah yeah so that's another thing that di- that sort of uh, helps me choose the artist like like you're saying it's a high energy festival so and a sort of good mood yeah. positive Happy you know it's it. not yeah it's not introspective it's not cer- cerebral it's not too experimental yeah so that's another thing that dictates you know what kind of bands yeah we
0: get. So it does make a big difference on understanding the vibe of the festival what you want the kind of people uh, and also have then decide whether what's your taste versus what will sell tickets. So basically the balance of everything and you do check emails if someone does send their press kit across but it does make a difference if there are good videos over there.
1: Yeah, videos is a is a big thing like some, like, yeah, yeah I, I don't think i've ever booked a band without seeing a video yeah. a, a live performance
0: exactly. so their press kit has to have a youtube video link or something yeah all right yeah so now the one of the biggest issues of course is covid <laughs> you yeah. know and we've actually got a question in the chat also about how like you know what do you do now do we do virtual gigs how do you scout for virtual gigs what's going to be the future i mean i don't know what will happen we don't know if any festivals are happening what do you feel you know is the future in say the next one year do you feel like we can go back to gigging anytime soon
1: well i mean naturally it's very unpredictable right now and i think the timeline gigs will start happening but i don't think it will be as soon as we think unfortunately it might be six months even one year Mm -hmm. but certain gigs smaller gigs might start you know smaller outdoor gigs might be allowed Mm -hmm. but it might also like the business viability of gigs is going to take a hit yeah you know because like if if venues are suddenly told that you can only work at half capacity or this much square footage means you're only allowed this much people because you have to allow for social distancing yeah if stuff like that starts you know being
0: yeah
1: then you know a venue can't like, already venues are struggling to pay artists the price that they deserve then you know yeah. you can you imagine that and like so the big festivals and all will be the last things to get allowed
0: yeah which really sucks <laughs> for us yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. so it's kind of like a wait and watch thing but i do think there are a few uh, positive opportunities that will come up over the next one or two years because of this mm-hmm. i think it's going to change the way people consume experiences okay um i think that um when we do start doing events again i think there'll be a you know like the potential to have a more 360 degree experience at events like not just music but other things that add on to it but Again, that might be because I also think about the European market. So it could be that the European market is more ready for those kind of yeah. add ons. You know, in India, it's not always easy because, again, when there's so much unpredictability, you don't want to invest into all these extra activities when you're not even sure if the gig will, you know, yeah, exactly. get its police permission or license or whatever.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, but what, are you, what is your. Uh, opinion about digital gigs I mean would you ever see a digital Sula fest or like or just general you know like do you think it's actually something viable do you think
1: I think there's I mean people there might be some money to be made there though that's also a very tricky situation but my my personal I've never been very uh uh gung-ho about digital Mm -hmm. for me digital is actually the opposite of what we are trying to do yeah because we are trying to have
0: vibe, create a uh,
1: get people together physically,
0: yeah.
1: music, sound, you know, like uh, get people. It's, it's like that a dance floor or, or a concert setting becomes one living organism if yeah. you think about it. You know, where I, people are just.
0: I personally don't enjoy any of the live. Festival, no. even the conference yeah. that ones that I'm taking part, in, that's why I'm hoping I can go in person. Yeah. You get bored, like it's just like I, yeah. you know, this was that's why this talk is an hour max because I know half of them will fall asleep in a bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. it gets it's not the same watching. It's like watching TV. Then, like, how can I experience the festival and the vibe is so different. And I yeah. think if you've never been at a music festival, it's different. But for people like us who spend majority yeah. of our time there, it's yeah. it doesn't feel you know.
1: Different. Yeah, so it's it's quite frustrating to, and like. Like I see some of these live streams, like I, I, I laugh at them actually. To be honest with you, there'll be some famous DJ behind him. Will be some 18th century villa, and he's playing, yeah. and he's wearing like like. And I'm like, what does an 18th century villa have to do with underground techno? And this, you know, he's, you know, like it's just like people. I understand people need to make money and continue their income, but I feel like things. It's like you have this dry blanket, and you're trying to squeeze out like a few Whatever drops.
0: You, can. Yeah.
1: you know, yeah. But it's unfortunate that we've gotten to a situation where we have, people have to do that. Yeah. I just hope that once things start to, because things will get better yeah. uh, and things will fall into place back again. I just hope that when that happens, this digital thing that is now increasing doesn't start to try and replace, mm-hmm. you know, like people figure out, oh, we can make more money through this because we don't have to rent all this production. and Let's keep doing this. <laughs> That's kind of of annoying to
0: me. So we have a couple of questions right now, which are relating to this. So I just thought I'll ask them. Um, can you please elaborate the 360 experience, any ideas for live events after the pandemic? Like what are some of the things you were thinking of when it came to 360?
1: Well, um, for example, yeah, they can be see like workshops. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: Like actual teaching of instrumentation. They can be open mics. There can be more interact like things where because most festivals in India right now you go there it's like a one way street. The people are just going there to consume, mm-hmm. but they're not participating. Yeah. So there can be more interesting ways to get the audience involved. Yeah. There could be uh, an idea I had was like a crowd funded festival that's not not only is the money uh, supported by by crowdfunding but even ideas. Oh, well, that's. You know so. Yeah. Can you imagine a festival where 20,000 people or, or whatever, 2,000 people given production design ideas? And then of course there has to be a festival panel who who chooses which ones to use, yeah. and, but then credits those people and makes them part of the process. Yeah. And then what, what, and for each component of the festival, you could have different people chipping in ideas. Yeah. And uh, then when you actually have this festival, you not only do you have your own team, but you have this, large wider circle of people who are actually involved in the festival
0: exactly so if anybody listening wants to do this you can hire us to do your production (laughs) artist relations because you're gonna need us to execute it (laughs) all right so next question we have is so what is the solution i mean what do artists do what with the situation now what can artists do besides digital gigs i mean if they want that live experience they have no other choice right now right i mean
1: yeah i mean uh, for for people who make music this is actually a great time to focus on production mm-hmm. and and refining your art like if you play an instrument you can just play more yeah get better or release, because, music, yeah. release music because the thing is baby. <laughs> yeah. because like when things start coming back on on track the value of of uh, a performance and a gig is actually going to go up. I'm not necessarily mean financial value, but yeah. people are going to be much more like you know. It's like if you haven't drank water for three days and suddenly you get a glass of water. Yeah. So people are going to be really thankful for it and really receptive to it. So if if you've spent this time on increasing, you know, making yourself a better performer
0: and fan base,
1: whatever that takes, or
0: online, yeah, interactions,
1: yeah, yeah. Like it's difficult to increase your fan base when you're not performing, but you could make videos of you performing and put them up that way. Not like a live stream necessarily, but you could, yeah. you know, Okay. I mean, digital has a few benefits because you can reach a lot of people.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you can do like takeovers and interactions and other forms of, you know, and stuff, I so yeah. think yeah. you can do.
1: Um, yeah. So that's so, uh, the, yeah. One, one, yeah one related to this this same question and about COVID and stuff is that I think another positive thing that can come off this is uh, the idea that small is beautiful because when we restart everything we are I think the scale of events is going to have to be mm-hmm. you know there'll be less sponsorship there'll be less money spending power will, will be less so we might have to start again with smaller events more underground events. And that's a space where things can be really intimate. We, we almost get a chance to reset because as the scene grows, yeah. things happen. And then above that, another thing happens and, and mistakes that are made get buried yeah. and things that could have been taken advantage of disappear. Yeah. But here's like an opportunity to, to reset yeah. Yeah, and fix it and start from the beginning. It's also an opportunity for upcoming artists because sometimes it's difficult for upcoming artists to break into the market. Yeah, And then the bigger artists just get more and more established. But suddenly there's a new situation and we don't know what that situation is. Yeah. Who knows what avenues are going to open for, for upcoming artists.
0: Exactly. So one of the other questions we have is how do festivals go about booking DJ acts? Especially in India, like Indian DJ acts. Is there any criteria or is it again based on the vibe and how they play? Because I mean, the live videos, I'm assuming don't do justice to a DJ.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're booking a DJ act, you don't usually um, ask for a live video. Yeah. Um, but seeing a live video helps for sure, especially because even me, when I book DJs, if I if I see they're a good performer.
0: And the crowd and everything, how they're doing yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. But
1: But of course, the first thing is what kind of, event is it. So if it's, you know, a multi-genre event or only techno or only side trance, whatever. So the music will dictate it. But after that, I have noticed that um, most Indian DJ bookings are based on fame. That's how it is. Um, But also, uh, so you have to, it's maybe harder to break into the you know, the DJ scene that way, because, yeah, but at the same time, you know, all events have earlier slots yeah. in the day that they have to fill up, fill in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wish, I wish over there, I wish to see more experimentation. You know, I'm, I'm seeing even in those slots, it's like the same <laughs> acts again and again Yeah. sometimes, yeah. you know, so. Because they
0: haven't reached that t- the, the, the headliner slot yet, but they're sort of still known. So you just like, okay, they have some following. So you keep, putting them in in all these yeah. yeah 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 so one last question about this topic and then we're going to we have some questions about your djing so what future trends do you anticipate in the live music industry will rock and roll make a comeback or will electronic and hip hop continue to dominate <laughs> rock and roll baby come back
1: <laughs> well i love rock and roll and i love the you know the all the, but hip hop is definitely growing in india um and it's becoming, you know, I mean it's always been mainstream and commercial, whichever country or industry has been a part of. Yeah. So I, I don't I see hip hop growing, electronic music will will keep growing. Yeah. Rock and roll, I don't know, it ki- kind of mm-hmm. it has waves, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't see it going away because it's it's like the classic yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. But I do, you know, as the youth is getting is starting to go out and party. I do see less rock and roll.
0: Yeah, I think it's also just the trend. I think trends globally. You know, people get into more of the electronic stuff. They're experimenting more with that. So you know, and then venues find it easier and cheaper to book DJ yeah. over live bands. So that kind of pushes it further. The, the, yeah. the vibe of just getting drunk and partying, you know, it's different. Yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah, it would, it would, it would be there, but it wouldn't be the same. Maybe after a few years, there might be a dip and people maybe after covid people are sick of the like the djs and they want live
1: yeah yeah you know that's what i'm saying like people's the way they consume events and music can change and people might want things that are a bit more engaging
0: yeah exactly i do feel like music
1: is always more i
0: have a feeling that this might actually help us in the long run you know like yeah you know so let's start about, uh, let's talk about you as a DJ. So you aren't a producer, right? You don't make your own music, you just DJ? Correct. Which is which is in very interesting to hear considering nowadays everybody wants to be a producer <laughs> and they don't like to be called a DJ half the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, which is a, an unfortunate situation because this hierarchy, look, of course you need producers and they're like, without them, there'd be no music. They're the ones making the music. Yeah but the skill, the skill set that goes into DJing is actually quite different from production yeah. because when you're a DJ, you have an infinite amount of music to choose from yeah. and you have to narrow it down and, you know, tell a story. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: but producers technically and musically they're making music, but as like often when a, when a producer is DJing mm-hmm. his, his or her own music,
0: yeah.
1: it's, it's one style, it's flat. Yeah. And it's great music for sure, but it'll, the story will be less because you can only play your own productions. Yeah. But a DJ can choose, you know, three tracks from one, three from another, and really, you know, weave a story. Yeah. And I find it quite sad that the
0: the tone because
1: <laughs> get yeah,
0: flack for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and actually, in in the in the good old days, let's say, <laughs> the the producers were never DJing. The the producers were making music, and it was the DJs who brought it out and put it onto the dance floor. And you know, like, so so this. But now the producers are the ones who get more bookings, higher fees, which is great. I mean, nothing to say because they're they're the ones making the music. But I, I think that DJs and producers should not be looked as one above the other they should almost be looked as two independent skill sets
0: yeah yeah so you've been DJing in india i mean i know you started abroad so when you came back here how did you kind of start getting gigs like what did you go about like did you just run just contact clubs or was it good you know and how do you get and i know you you know you tour a lot every summer you're in europe how do the international bookings happen
1: well, um, when I I'll answer your question in the order you asked it. When I first came back to India, um, I mean, I was a DJ in New York, but I wasn't like some huge name or anything. So it's not like people really knew me. But I was really like within the site because I play techno, but I but I, but before that, I've been playing psytrance for even longer because of my experience growing up in Goa. So I know the the psytrance scene is a very like tight knit global network Mm -hmm. so wherever you are in any country in the world most countries there's people from who like that music and you end up knowing someone who knew someone from somewhere else you know so when i came back to bombay when i moved back to india the first parties i played at were not at venues they were illegal outdoor all-night parties in the the jungle the
0: good old days (laughs) yeah exactly
1: proper out yeah like those like but those parties aren't they don't happen anymore. They don't. I was actually then, telling
0: my students about cyber mafias, which used to happen in Delhi back yeah. in the early nineties, and I used to go when I was like 15, 16 like partying it
1: up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I've I've always had, no matter where in the world I've lived, I, I we have my my mom lives in Goa, and I have a house in Goa. So um, when whenever, whenever I'm in Goa, I I've been playing. I get gigs here because people know me here and. Goa is kind of like the where the Psytrance scene started. Mm, yeah. Um, then also because of bookings in Blue Frogs, mm. uh, in Blue Frog, um, I ended up knowing a lot of promoters and festival organizers all over the world because um, you, you just kind of become in the spotlight when you start booking a lot of artists. And I was a DJ myself, so I would play at Blue Frog. Yeah. And then people would take videos of me playing pictures and those started going around and I started collecting all this, media and uh, because blue Frog was also such a great looking club so when when you perform there the videos and the pictures you get there and the crowd is always like wow
0: yeah
1: yeah so i collect i just collected a lot of of media of my performances and then using the contacts i had made through the bookings and also the people i know from the goa trance scene from before i just started sending it to people and you know and the thing is when you're booking artists you know exactly what people are looking for so then when you approach You know, I'm luck. I'm fortunate to be on both sides of the camera. So they speak. I'm booking artists and trying to get booked. So it made, like, I never had a manager. Mm -hmm. People ask me, you get so many gigs abroad, but how do you do it without a manager? It's like, I am my own manager. Yeah,
0: you're used to doing it. <laughs>
1: I'm used to doing it. I don't I don't need a manager. If I had a manager, I'd probably fry their brains <laughs> cuz I'd keep telling them what to do. Yeah,
0: you know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so even internationally it's basically through the contacts you've made while you were booking artists here and through the through. it's basically networking at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, it's networking, but the thing is networking uh, is the is the backdrop, but at the end I mean I I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet, but you might get a gig, but you have to play well Yeah. at the end of the day. Music is the most important thing. Yeah. You have to deliver like, okay. The contacts got me the first few festival gigs in Europe, mm-hmm. but that was years ago. If, if I didn't play well, or if it didn't work out well, I, there were those gigs would have stopped. Yeah. So you have, it's a combination of, of your yeah. passion and skill and your contacts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean,
1: and there's, you still... there's a lot of, yeah, go ahead there's a lot of um, people who do trading what i call and i used to get approached for it a lot and I, I i never did it like people would tell me at blue frog like look um book our artists to play at blue frog and we'll book you to play somewhere else but that's not and really this is not cool because then you're booking artists not because of their skill you're booking it for your own to get yeah. use and then suppose i suck and that artist sucks and then we are both subju- sub sub uh, subjugating audiences in different places to listen to us because other people want are using us for something else yeah. you know
0: yeah.
1: and a lot of people do this and oh, yeah. like i never did it and i'm really happy that i didn't and there were gigs i did not get because of it but that's fine yeah. you know
0: yeah i mean you want to be there because you deserve to be there as well
1: you know yeah. 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 yeah yeah and you don't want to be booking other people art other artists just for your own you know
0: benefit benefit yeah so yeah. we have one really interesting question. It says, as a DJ, should you focus on one genre or multiple genres to get more gigs, even genres that you don't like?
1: Um, I would say focus on what you like. And I would say focus on on one or two genres. You know, like, for example, me, I play techno and I play psytrance. But beyond that, I don't play anything else. But your
0: techno but started later, right? I mean, you first developed started your late. name as yeah. a psytrance DJ.
1: yeah. And it's tricky to do both because like you, you get like, sometimes if, if you try and play techno, but people know you're also a psytrance DJ, the techno people will not take you as seriously, which to me is another sad thing because music is about being open. Yeah. And if someone can play multiple genres of music, they should be appreciated for it, but it's a tricky balancing act. So to answer your question, I think it's better to focus on what you like and focus on one thing. And then later, if you see the scope of expanding, Yeah then yes yeah. but there's a second part to that question because there's the, in india especially there's a big demand for djs not a big demand but there is a demand for djs who are multi-genre yeah like dj clement yeah for example
0: yeah <laughs>
1: um so i mean if you can play pop and hip-hop and bollywood and retro and and stuff there is a segment for that mm-hmm. but that is quite a
0: different it's a different thing then you're not really it's known a, as an it's like a different
1: exactly yeah like you're not you're, you're, known as an
0: artist but i mean yeah. it was weird but like you're known as a dj <laughs> like it's yeah. different subtle different
1: yeah no there's there's dj's who play only one genre and they're known as a dj but if you're if you're going to be a multi genre person you it, it won't be you that they're booking yeah it's your it's just your rep, you know yeah. something that they want from you at that time yeah, yeah. you know so you're not really developing um, your own identity that way because most people who play multi-genre music they're it's more everything is on the surface you know they're not going deep into any yeah, any genre
0: true so the, this question I'm interested to know your answer what do you enjoy more being a DJ or programming Sula fest. Oh! <laughs> say, Sula, say Sula say Sula no no I'm just joking you DJ at Sula too technically you always play the after party but yeah
1: at the after party yeah um, it's two very different things, you know, so <laughs> I really can't answer okay, that question. If you had
0: to, if you had to give up one <laughs> tomorrow, if you were told you can either program Sula Fest or you can DJ, what would you choose?
1: <laughs> I'm not going to answer
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly you'll get fired but, from Sula. Like, Acha, <laughs> uh, so it's both neck and neck, huh? Both you, you love Yeah, it's...
1: Yeah, I like both, and it's it's hard to compare, you know. Like, if you were to tell me, like, okay, either choose DJing techno or DJing a tr- trance, then I could maybe make a choice. But what's, what's programming? The tell
0: us the choice: techno <laughs> or trance? I trance. <laughs> <Side> trance. Actually,
1: i <laughs> Actually, not going to answer that either. Oh
0: my god! So okay, so someone's asked you: uh, Do you see techno and psy scene growing in tier two cities? I think techno yeah. is still doing. Well.
1: Techno is. I don't know. Techno is. Techno is growing in tier two cities. Sai is actually, in my opinion, dwindling. Is reducing in cities uh, in India. In India. Um, I
0: love.
1: Yeah, that. like in. Yeah, like in Goa, in Goa the, the scene is good, but in the cities, compared to like how the the sai parties were in Bombay and Delhi and Bangalore a couple of years ago, compared to now, mm-hmm. it's not as nice. I've noticed the parties are like 90 percent boys it's like <laughs> yeah you know yeah, yeah. and, a bit, and, and, and when know. it
0: comes to techno in fact uh, i would say check out what unmute does from what i remember they've saying that they have a touring circuit of about nine ten cities in india so i'm some of them are tier two cities and most of their djs are techno djs so they do have sort of like a mini circuit of sorts going so techno is doing pretty okay in tier two cities
1: yeah and there's there's like djs like uh uh Anki, Anki tricks yeah who have you know made a concerted effort to not only play in in tier one cities or whatever but also play in you know and he has a good following in many tier two cities and he keeps going back and playing there and and, they, you know, the Tier 2 cities get even more excited because it's not like they're having gigs all the time. every weekend.
0: Yeah. You know? it's about so it's actually making, a great market. Making an effort to kind of, even if you don't get paid your coat or whatever, making an effort to kind of keep going so you can develop that fan base so that eventually you can get the kind yeah. of money you want.
1: Yeah, plus the fan base in a Tier 2 city is going to be much more loyal, loyal and more <laughs> passionate about you because it's yeah. just something that's not happening all the time for them.
0: So someone's asked you, how hard is it to balance your career as an artist and somebody who's booking? I mean, I know you don't have a full on booking agent because you don't do regular bookings anymore, right? You just do Sulafi. Yeah. So right now. Yeah. yeah. So how hard is it? Oh, when, when you were booking as, when you were working as a consultant for, uh, for blue frog, when you were booking regularly, you know, and DJing, how hard was it to balance? Is that something you feel people can do or is it tough?
1: uh um, it's i mean you can do it but it has its challenges like for example uh, you have to be careful of like burnout for example yeah you know because the like the blue frog life was pretty hectic because we had different acts every day of the week and i was in the club 3 to 4 times a week then i was in the office every day then when i would go on holiday somewhere i was djing yeah. so i was constantly whether i was working or whether i was on holiday i was constantly in this music space, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's also can, you know, I mean, nightlife industry also means drinking and drugs and smoking and traveling and eating Horrible. at the wrong times. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to really, you know, keep a track of yeah. your health. Yeah, You know, yeah. that's one thing.
0: It definitely takes a toll on you.
1: Yeah. Like I, I mean, now I don't drink, I don't smoke. I don't do anything because I made a conscious decision that I reached a point in my career where things were going a little bit not out of control, but I was not feeling healthy, yeah. and you know it was not going in a good direction. So I had to yeah. balance out. I think- but then on on the other huh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, also, it it can be a bit like this. The thing I was saying about trading, you know, like that things like that also get in your way when when you're booking and a performer. Yeah. So you have to you know like balance all of those energies that keep getting thrown your way
0: it's your loyalty again right are you loyal to yourself or you're loyal to the the venue or you know you have to kind of yeah. you can't just do things for yourself you have to be loyal to the venue who's paying you
1: yeah to do yeah. but also like it's like some in the beginning i had to get the venue because at the end of the day even though i was part of the blue frog core team i was it's not my club i'm an employee Yeah. so when i started traveling to do gigs in other cities or even go to europe to gigs to do gigs, the Blue Fog owners, in the beginning, they were like, not happy about it, you know, and I had to explain to them, I'm like, dude, like, the more I travel, the more people I meet, the more gigs I play in other places, I'm only meeting other artists and meeting other managers. And this is all going to benefit the club because my relationship, the more my relationships grow and my contacts grow, I can use them in the club plus even if, if I go and play somewhere else and I do a good gig and people know that oh this guy is the programmer for blue Frog, it makes the club look good also yeah. so you know it, it the, so then they they kind of understood you know but I had to make it a point to make them aware of
0: that yeah yeah so um somebody asked what is it your take on play pay to play scene in the dj community here in India like you pay to play
1: oh that's terrible. Don't do it. <laughs> Never,
0: yeah. I didn't know that still happened, but that sucks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But um, any examples of this? What kind of music, like who, who, the person who's asking the question, do they have experience of this?
0: Uh, I think they might, I, uh, they haven't said, uh, guy, do you want to write back If you Ah, there's one second. No, he has, doesn't have any experience, but he's heard about it.
1: Yeah. I mean don't do that because one, you're just lowering your own value.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, you're making it negative value because you should be getting paid. But two, you're also, you know, making, if you do that, you're just fueling the fire because then they'll think they can do it to more people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I mean, it just makes you feel like shit at the end.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like it's understandable to like, I've played a few gigs that I I played for free. Mm you know but paying to play is like just don't do it you know
0: yeah exactly so just to kind of wrap up what advice would you give to all the young people who are either getting into the scene as an artist or getting into the scene as somebody who's going to work in the scene as a booking agent festival promoter like what advice could you give them um
1: well the, the first thing is going back to what we've said a few times that it's all about your interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. with people. It's the music scene is a very people oriented scene. So that's one. The second is that no matter what the technical and the logistical sides and obstacles seem, uh, make your, I mean, just, you have to just keep trying and passion, you know, because like, I think one of the questions was like, how do you get gigs abroad? Yeah. I never thought, that okay, how do I get gigs abroad? You just that's the wrong approach. You I mean, of course you can have a goal and you have a dream, mm-hmm. but you just one step at a time, you just do what you like, stay true to yourself and make good good relationships. Mm-hmm. And then whatever energy you put in, as long as your the canvas you're putting it on is a positive one, which means you have the right energy and you know the right people, then good things come from it. Yeah um and i setbacks will, will always happen in the music scene i i remember once one of my biggest gigs i was about to get on stage and then the cops canned the party canned the festival <laughs> it was sunburn festival in the second year yeah. and i i was broken i thought that was my biggest gig ever yeah. and i'm never going to get uh, you know it's I'm, all over I now,
0: and now. <laughs> <laughs> it happens i mean this is part and parcel of india i mean like you know, these things do happen. And we kind of have to just take it in our stride and be like, there will be a next time, you know, Yeah. yeah. and like what you said, definitely take care of your health. And this is something that I can also really attest to this industry, whether you're in it as an artist, an artist manager. And I think anybody from, I think our generation now has sort of been like, okay, no drinking, no smoking, no this, no that, because we did too much of it back in our time. And it really affected us because we, you know, it was day and night and we kind of didn't know how to set healthy boundaries and that kind of really you know we're we're in our late 30s early 40s now and that's when it really kind of gets to you and you're like what was i doing with my life (laughs) you know so definitely make sure that you take care of yourself Yeah. thank you so much for being with us awesome uh, stay safe (laughs) yes